Welcome to an American Family Radio special broadcast. For the next hour, we'll present a message from Abraham Hamilton III, Senior Legal Counsel for the American Family Association and host of the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. Abe shared this message during a recent marriage and family conference. The message is titled, Marriage is Ministry. Now, here's Abe Hamilton. I'm going to talk for the time that we have uh, about marriage. There are lots of people in lots of churches we've been praying about, uh, revival and things of that nature, but I I strongly believe Second 2 Chronicles 7.14, most of you can quote it better than I can, if my people who are called by my name uh, would uh, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, confess our sins, and he will heal our land. I strongly believe that the revival we so desperately need in our country is tied to a reformation that we need in our families. It's very easy to talk about you, me, or the man under the tree, but the reality is if the people still to this day, 70 plus percent of the American population professes to be Christians, now we all know that not to be true, but that's still the profession that's made. If the Lord could gather the attention of those of us who profess to be his followers, I think revival would be the imminent result of that. Um, Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the world do? Mm-mm. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the political system do? Mm-mm. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? I believe very strongly the body of Christ needs to spend more time investigating what God ordained for humanity prior to the rebellion that occurred in the Garden of Eden. If you listen to the program, you know why I refer to it as rebellion. Referring to the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden as a fall kind of gives the indication that they were just frolicking around the Garden and, oh, I don't, what happened? I don't know how I ended up here and, mm, with this new freshly hand-tailored design of fig leaves. No, nah, it was a rebellion. They knew exactly what they were doing, intentionally invested in that commitment, and suffered the consequences, but it was not a trip and stumble. It was a rebellion. Prior to the rebellion, God gives us a clear indication of the primary institution that he's ordained. He's ordained, obviously, government. He's ordained, obviously, church. But the first institution that God ordained uh, in the history of humankind Before there was ever a church, before there was ever a monarchy, before there was ever an order of prophets, there was the family. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When the Bible says, then God said, let us make man, that's a reference to the Godhead, which is why you have the plural, us, Elohim, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when the Lord says, let us make man in our image and our likeness, those are not redundant terms. Those are terms that are different. The Hebrew word for image there is selim, which means patterned after the original. Isn't it amazing? We serve a tripartite or 
God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us in a tripartite fashion. We are mankind. We have a body. We are a spirit with a soul inside of a body. A tripartite God creates a tripartite man in his likeness. The Hebrew word there is demuth, meaning of a similar substance. Patterned after his likeness of a similar substance. And let them have dominion. Now, there have been many people, much smarter than I, that spend lots of time talking about a dominion mandate, but all too often we fail to recognize that God proclaimed this in this particular fashion for a purpose. The Lord, being the omnipotent creator of all that is, could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have said, let there be all of the people who were in the population of the world, just like he said, let there be light. But he chose to do it this way because I believe God is the greatest teacher of theology that exists. He's intending to convey to us reality in the way that he unfolds the created universe. And he says, let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, and all of these things. And after the Lord makes this grand proclamation about mankind having dominion, the very first command uttered in Scripture, before the Lord even gets to the conversation about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life. Before the Lord ever gets to the Ten Commandments, before the Lord ever gets to the Levitical priesthood, the first command authored in Scripture is what? And be fruitful and multiply. Could it be God is conveying to us the primacy and the importance in his unfolding plan for mankind in letting us know that the first utterance from his lips is for mankind's dominion to be tied to its fruitfulness? Isn't that amazing? And it seems everybody understands that except the believers. One of the things that happens amongst Muslim communities, they have active jihad, which many of us are familiar with. 9-11 towers crashing, things of that nature. But there's also a passive jihad. To where the phrase goes, if we cannot convert them or kill them, we will breed them out. Which is why even among Muslim communities, when there is a mother among a Muslim community that has more than one child, they are celebrated in the community by strangers. But it's something that we are catching up to much, much more slowly than even those, and I'm just going to be real, I'm not going to play around with y'all, even those who are following a religion that was authored by demons. <laughs> I'm just going to lay it straight. Children are intrinsically significant to God's plan for unfolding his great commission. In fact, I would argue that what we have just read is the initial iteration of the great commission. Because we have the Lord saying he's made mankind after his likeness and in his image with the instructions to be fruitful and multiply. Which sounds eerily similar to go ye into all the world teaching men to obey all that I've commanded you. Multiplication, the principle later on illustrated in Genesis 1 and 2 is that everything reproduces after its own kind. Go into all the world, teach them to obey what I've commanded you. Reproduce after your own kind. Go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's the same command in two different times. Uh, and, I, and I feel compelled by the Lord not to discuss children as much but from God's standpoint, children are inherent to the understanding of family. Part of the problem within our modern context is we bought the lie that sexual activity should be decoupled from children. <laughs> I'm going to just chuckle a little bit on that one. 
<laughs> we bought the lie that we want to enjoy the physicality without the fruit of physicality. So the only way to do that is for the world to tell you that fruit is not fruit. To make you think that it's spoiled. That it caused you to say when you see lots of grapes, mm, why are you doing all of that? That's another one. I know you heard it. I heard this one. Don't y'all know how to stop that? And look, y'all know I'm from the ninth world. I ain't used to people coming up to me saying crazy stuff. I'm like, man, I don't even know you. What you mean do I know how to stop that? This ain't none of your business. You ain't feeding my children. But the cultural hostility has invaded its way into the church. Let me keep going. So understanding that as the first commandment, I want to I emphasize that a bit because the dominion that God delegated, and some people like to say dominion, I like to say delegated authority, because I think when the focus is on the dominion too much, humankind has its tendency to want to uh, declare our independence from God. But discussing it in terms of delegated authority requires you to continually refer to the delegator. If the authority that I have has been delegated to me, it requires me to continuously check in with the one to whom I have been delegated it by. So understanding that reality, <laughs> fruitfulness and multiplication within the marital context is the context in which God announced his delegation of authority to mankind. It was given to a family, a man and a woman with the capacity to bear offspring. That is the pentultimate delegation of authority. So when we understand that, the fundamental building block of executing the king's dominion, get it? Living in the kingdom. The critical component of kingdom living is not what we do in the corporate worship gatherings. It's what we do in the individual units of the Lord's bride, in the families, in the families. I'm going to go on over to Genesis chapter 2 and discuss the what of marriage. What is marriage? That shouldn't be a question that requires much definition, but in our society, we've gotten a bit confused in these days. But I'm going to read verses 18 through 25 in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is... At last, it's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That passage of Scripture defines for us what marriage is. So no matter what alternative concoctions human beings come up with, they can say it's marriage, but that does not make it marriage. God has defined what it is. It is the exclusive 
lifelong union of one man and woman with the capacity for offspring. Why do I say capacity? Because I know in the fallen world we have different issues reproductively and things of that nature, but none of those issues foreclose the potential. I know plenty of people who were told they were unable to reproduce, and all of a sudden, because when you have the capacity for A plus B, C is always op an option on the table. But when you start off with B plus B, the capacity doesn't exist. All right, I don't have to say too much there. All right. And to be an equal opportunity truth teller, Pastor reminded me to say A plus A either. All right. Or A plus A plus A. Or B plus B plus B and the dog. Y'all get, get the point. Y'all get the point. Now I'm going to start from the top because there's, there's, there's so much that can be described here. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll start this by saying it this way. The current penchant to redefine manhood and masculinity and womanhood and femininity is not merely a cultural modernization. I would submit to you that it is a direct attack on the gospel and the authority of scripture. Why do I say that? Because of the fundamental defining of what man is, what woman is, and what marriage is laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, it requires an investment of trust in God and his word to lean on that. So when the society tries to pull the rug of reliance on God's word away from us based on his definition of marriage, manhood, and womanhood, when that is presented as if it's up for debate, why then should we embrace the next chapter, three? Because if Genesis 1, ah, take it or leave it. Genesis 2, hmm, sometimes take it or leave it. Well, what happens in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 is what a rebellion is explained in great detail. And conveys to us that there is only one solution for the sin sickness in which we've all been infected. And that is the Christ, Jesus. So if we allow ourselves to debate manhood in Genesis 1, we inject into our own world questioning the authority of Scripture. If we're able to debate marriage, then why can't we debate sin and redemption? You see, if Genesis 1 is no longer authoritative, then what bases then should we hold to Genesis 3? And so in an effort to be culturally relevant, which I can't even say those words honestly, because if you, if you mutate God's word, you're not being relevant. You're not. I mean, you're not. But if we, in an effort to be culturally relevant, we very well could be removing from ourselves the necessity to evangelize. Oh, I wonder why most churches are not evangelizing today. <laughs> and the necessity of the cross it is a gospel issue and will always remain a gospel issue. Now, discussing the complementarity piece, God made them, and he describes this intentionally, man and woman, equal in value before the Lord, yet qualitatively different. Value is equivalent. <laughs> Functions are different. The differences in function do not communicate a diminishment in value. And to be very, very candid, this is a discussion that we did not have to have in the Church of the Living God in America until the last 50 to 70 years. Questions now about the 
equivalency between manhood and womanhood are really the product of the feminist movement. Men and women are equal qualitatively, but they are not identical. The world is attempting to convey to us that men and women are identical. I saw this, this advertisement recently for this Bonobos thing where they are posing a question to initially was just men, saying, what does it mean to be masculine? You had all of these men answering questions, saying that definitions of manhood are just too limiting. Then all of a sudden I noticed, oh, that's a woman who is attempting to represent herself as if she's a man and to say that, oh, well, the historical definitions of Masculinity don't allow room for exploration. Right. There's no need to explore what is masculine. But the reason why she wanted to suggest exploration was appropriate is because she wanted to identify herself as a man, even though she knows she's not. And then the last statement that there was a, a man who said the question about what does it mean to be masculine is really a question about what it means to be human. No, chief. No, the question about what it means to be masculine is a very specific question. It's very easy and okay to understand within humanity we have various categories. Let me give you a couple examples. We have humans, then we have newborns, and we have toddlers, and we have preteens and teenage. It's okay. The question about what it means to be masculine is not a question about what it means to be human. No. It's a question about what it means to be masculine, but clearly their intent was to expand the expectations and conceptions of the listeners and those who have watched that commercial to be open to alternative suggestions about masculinity, which is a great example of why when we are entertaining thoughts, we take what, okay, now let's go see if that lines up with the word of God. Clearly that does not line up with the word of God. The differences between men and women do not suggest that either is of superior or inferior value or quality, but simply that there is designed uniqueness in both, which prevents one from being the other by nature. That's it. That's it. Natural law. That's exactly right. Complementarity provides the biological capacity for mankind to fully complete its mandate to exercise the king's dominion over the earth. The king's dominion requires reproduction, naturally. Now, I'm going to make two categorical statements, and then I'm going to dig into this text a little bit. So one, in verse 18, you see the one who suggested from the very onset that marriage was good was not even Adam. Look at verse 18 again. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. The goodness of marriage was a suggestion by God himself. That's why it's good to desire marriage. It's good to discuss marriage. It's good to celebrate marriage, not because I say so, but because God says so. Secondarily, verse 20, let's read this. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. It is God who created in mankind the desire to be married. 
it's instructive for us that the Lord makes the announcement about it not being good for Adam to be alone and then allows Adam to become fully confronted with the level of his aloneness. I believe God did that intentionally to cultivate an appetite in Adam's heart that revealed to him tangibly that there is something that I am missing now. Which is probably why the Bible tells us later on in the book of Proverbs, he that finds a wife, and I'll just say something right there, he that finds a wife, not that finds a female. And it's kind of funny, but it's not because the Lord is speaking to the quality of a woman, not to the identification of a female. He who finds a wife, the quality of a wife exists prior to her being introduced to her house band. He that finds a wife, the quality of a wife is cultivated prior to the moment of revelation. That's why the Lord even conceals Eve from Adam, and the Bible says he reveals her to him. He that finds a wife finds a good thing, and there's a conjunction there, and obtains. So, obtention is the acquisition of something that you did not have before. Hello, You want to talk about making things better for men today. How much time should we spend talking to men about their need to develop their quality of being prepared, equipped, and biblically qualified to be joined to a bride? You want to obtain favor from the Lord. You have to ready yourself, partner, to obtain a wife. We have to transform our understanding of marriage to where we convey it to these young men that there is a quotient of favor available to you in marriage. Now, this is not to uh, diminish the reality that God does call some people to singleness, but that is a special grace from God. It is not the product of lack of options. The special grace of singleness is something that God gives, just like he gives a vocation to ministry to preach and exposit God's word. But it is not something you arrive at because you haven't met the right one yet. And there needs to be sufficient time and conversation about this as well. But simply because we know God's first command and his context for issuing the dominion mandate was to a man and a woman with the capacity for offspring. And the first command includes the reproduction to where the whole earth is filled. From that, we know that the majority of human beings will be married. Now. Verse 18 says it very well. I'll read it again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or a helper suitable for him. Because of the modern advancement of the feminist movement, the received communication, not what God's word says, the received communication is that a helper is somehow less than the one who needs help. Forget what the world says. What does the word say? A helper suitable. Isn't it amazing that the very term the world would seem to suggest is a diminishment, that is the same term the Lord gave to the one who was called alongside to lead and guide us into all truth? Isn't it amazing that the same term that the world would convey that is a diminishment is given to the same one who would convict men of sin? The Lord God Almighty in heaven above refers to the Spirit of God as the helper. 
This word helper in Hebrew literally means to build in that which is lacking. The helper is no less than the one who needs help. We find ourselves when we ingest this poison that the world gives us, that we end up standing in a position where we are holding our hands and resisting the very thing that God has ordained to bless us. You're listening to American Family Radio. This is a message from Abraham Hamilton III, which was recorded during the Urban Family Talk Marriage and Family Conference. The message is titled, Marriage is Ministry. And here again is Abe Hamilton. If there is a helper, there is one who needs help. Again, there is no diminishment in value between the two because both are ordained by God. But the world will tell us that you really are doing it as a woman if you become secretary of state. But if you happen to be a homemaker, you are less than. Again, that's what the world says, but let's go look at what the word says. The Bible says the means of subduing the earth is through reproduction. Ephesians chapter 5. So now, the what of marriage? One man, one woman, for life with the capacity for offspring. Now let's discuss the how-to. And for and I'm not opposed to how-to books, but I think the best how-to book is God's Word. And I'll, I'll go to it before I will go to any other book. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to just give this to you as a kind of an outline for your study of this particular epistle. Ephesians chapter 5 consists of six chapters. The first three chapters in the Greek are written in the indicative mood. They are indicating to us our condition in Jesus Christ. I mean, it has flowery things as a result of being uh, purchased with him and seated together in heavenly places and all of these things. But chapters four through six are written in the imperative mood. The imperatives are instructions that flow as a result of the indicatives. So the indicatives, this is who I am. Imperatives, because this is who I am, this is what you do. Chapters four through six are imperatives. This is God saying, now, because you are this in Christ, this is how you are to function. All right, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 32. I'm going to read those. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, the first thing I want to say that the clear communication from this is that God has ordained marriage to be a living, breathing illustration to a lost and dying world. The Lord literally intends for marriage to be 
a public display of his relationship to his bride. Could that be why the world is fighting so hard to mar the image of marriage? Could that be why the world is fighting so hard to persecute Jack Phillips? Could that be why there's such an aggressive press that includes mass marketing and multimedia campaigns to mar the image of marriage? He desires for marriage to be a living and breathing illustration of God's love and relationship to the church, his bride. Now, the first thing I'm going to say here is you see the Bible says that husbands are to love our wives. The Greek word there is agapao. That is the unconditional love. That is the love that is fully cognizant of every flaw, every error, every ward, every scar, every blemish. It says, I'm here anyway. Which clearly should communicate to you, in spite of much of the romantic comedies and the Hollywood portrayals, love is not an emotion. <laughs> love is an act of the will. It's accompanied by emotion, but it is not an emotion. This is why the Bible tells us things concerning emotions that we are to set our affections. I say very repeatedly, emotions are horrible generals, but they're great foot soldiers. The Lord did not design for emotions to lead us anywhere, which is why the whole concept of falling into love is not only deceptive, it's unbiblical. You don't fall into love, you march in that thing like a big boy soldier <laughs> because it's an act of the will accompanied by emotion. Now, God, being the genius that he is, he knows when he says men are to love their wives, he knows that it's an act of the will and it is accompanied by emotion. The world would attempt to tell us that men are emotionless beings, which is a lie. Men have emotion. We just express it differently. Many of you know I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. If you are from New Orleans, you're born a Saints friend. But as a result of being born a Saints fan, you will never find a Saints fan who could watch the game sitting over here and say, oh, wow, Drew Brees just threw an impeccable interception. Isn't it amazing how Alvin Kamara was able to run off a 40-yard run? No, a Saints fan is going to be up going berserk because men have emotion. We just express it differently, which really should convey to us as men, we should seek to learn how to accompany our commitments and love by conveying our emotion to our wives. Dr. Schuler it, it was here, and he's a disciple of Gary Chapman, wrote the book Five Love Languages. Most often, the issue is not a deficiency in love or even emotion, it's a deficiency of communication. He likes to fix stuff, she wants to watch movies together. She likes quality time, he likes acts of service. He's worked all day long, washing every car, cleaning every gutter, cutting all the grass, painting every fence comes inside, she says, I don't think you love me. He's like, what? <laughs> He's like, don't you recognize all that I've done for you? The reality is he receives and communicates love by serving with action. However, his wife receives and communicates love by quality time spent together. The same inherent feeling, but communicating on different wavelengths. As a result of love being an act of the will as men and husbands, it is our duty to learn our wives' love languages so that we don't allow deficiencies in communication to be misunderstood in deficiencies of commitment. Husbands, love your wives. And I believe very clearly that God put that in Scripture because he knew us husbands would need help here. He knew we would need help here. 
We are to investigate, to inquire, to communicate as best as we can, not to, to the point of frustration, but so that we are able to walk in this act of will that is accompanied by emotion. And as we develop our ability to be effective uh, love communicators, and that, that could be verbal or nonverbal, what you'll find is that the emotion will be accompanied on a ready basis. Now, I'm going to go a bit further now. We saw right at verse 22, <laughs> it said, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. One of the first things that should be noted about submission is that it is not a general carte blanche submission to every male. It's submitting to your own husbands. Now, unfortunately, I know a lot of places where there's more submission to the pastor than to their husbands. Did I say that out loud? Which shows several things. One, that submission is not the problem. It's the object. Submit to your own boss as a, well, if it can be done on the job, why can't it be done at the house? Let's dig into this a little bit. Before the women think I'm picking on them. The reality is this, this imperative command in Ephesians is not a command that's exclusively directed at women. <laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. <laughs> the Greek word for submit there is hupostasso, which is actually a military term. It literally means to arrange under one's authority. But here's a key component. It's voluntary arrangement under one's authority, which gives us the clear communication that there's nothing you can do to make someone submit to you. Biblically, it has to be voluntary. But digging deeper, this hupostasso word was transliterated into English and transliterate instead of translate because it's not a direct translation, but you do your best to convey it in English. This supostasso term was transliterated into English as submission, which is the combination of two old English words. Sub, which means under, and mission, the root of it is meter, M-I-T-R-E, which means sub, under, meter means vision, vision. So the biblical command of submission is not to biology, it's to vision. What the Lord is literally telling us from the foundation of the marriage. Remember, what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? From the foundation of the relationship between husbands and wives. In order as a man to be biblically qualified for marriage, the order of business first is that I know who I am in Christ. I have a vision for my life and future family from God. And I am already taking affirmative steps towards it. The biblical command about submission is literally saying that a man is biblically unqualified for marriage if he does not know who he is in Christ. If he does not have a vision for who he is in Christ and his future family. And he is not affirmatively taking steps toward it. Too many times submission is conveyed as if it is the woman's business when that is not what the Bible says at all. The order of first business, if you are going to be qualified to step up into the ranks of husbandry, who are you? Where are you going? Where would you take a wife and family? The Lord says when the blind lead the blind, 
everybody ends up in a ditch. Could it be the reason why we have so many people in the ditch today is we have males who may have progressed biologically, but they have not matured spiritually to the point of being qualified to obtain favor. Isn't it amazing that when the Lord makes the announcement that it's not good for Adam to be alone, he doesn't give him a bride right then? What happens immediately after the Lord makes that observation? Adam begins operating in what God had called him to be. That is the Lord showing us from the book of Genesis, it's not enough to observe that you're alone. <laughs> Your aloneness must first be met by you walking in the calling that God has ordained for you. Because without it, we have headless families. You are not ahead of your family solely by being a male. Headship requires vision from God. And walking in it. And within the context of this conversation, there's a light year's worth of difference between visionaries and dreamers. Dreamers have lots of ideas, lots of thoughts, lots of things that they may do one day at some point. Visionaries put feet to what God has called them to. It's a difference between having an idea and being captured by a calling. And the Lord is showing us being captured by a calling is foundation number one for being qualified as a man for marriage. So when I'm talking about communicating to men the necessity and the benefit and the joy and the beauty of marriage, a core component of those conversations are who are you, sir? What is your vision for your life? What has God shown you about your calling? What steps are you taking towards it? And if you are not taking steps, slow down and do yourself and myself a favor and the entire body of Christ and stay your little narrow tail out of the way of these women. I'm serious. I'm serious. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is that you get next to one another and the lust of the flesh arise. <laughs> That's why I think it's a demonic trick to have long engagements. That's a whole other conversation. Because when you are ready, you don't have to get ready. <laughs> Which includes ready in your pocketbooks. If you really want a bride. Now, if you just want company, go spend time with Will and me. <laughs> Come to the reception. We'll be company. But if you don't know who you are and what God has called you to, the best you can do is mess up. The best you can do is mess up. Why? Because you're not operating in purpose. So you just have someone to join you in building your wreck. And creating opportunities for the bailout prayers. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Again, I'm laughing, but I'm serious. So the first order of business and submission is for us as men to spend time living in what the scripture says. When I was a child, I thought as a child. But now that I'm a man, I put foolish, foolish ways behind me. Behind me, because there's something of greater value that's in front of me. Additionally, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Hupostasso, a military term. That is voluntary. And it's amazing that in this context that the object of the example is Christ. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Dr. Shula said something that was tremendous yesterday. They said, husbands, it's your job to show your wife that you're willing to die for her. And I had to keep myself still because the facts are that as husbands, we have to demonstrate our willingness to die for her on a regular basis. There is a commitment and then there is a security within the commitment. The call to being a husband is a call to die. But can I tell you something? That call to die isn't a grievous one. Remember Hebrews 8. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's the pleasure of a husband to lay his life down for his bride. Which communicates to us that we should look for opportunities to display our willingness to die for her. Because when we do the opposite, we communicate to our brides that they cannot be secure in our love for them. I'll give a practical example, and I think I told this story on, on, the, on the radio. Between my wife and I, when we first got married, uh, she was a bit less punctual than I was. It's just the truth. You know, I don't like being late to places. I don't. And initially, we had a routine habit of being late to places. Now, I know behind the scenes, the reason why we late is because of Maria. We didn't have any children then, so it's just she and I. But when we would show up somewhere, I would never want to expose her to any... I'll say it like this, unfriendly fire from the outside. So when we would show up a place, I would say, I'm sorry that we were late. Please forgive us. Now, I know and she knows it's because she was putting on makeup, doing whatever else. But it's my job as the husband to not expose her to the darts of the outsiders. It seems like a small thing. But these are the types of things that invest in our unions that our wives say, man, he would put himself in harm's way for me. I'll just be real candid with you guys. My wife came from a background where she witnessed her father abuse her mother physically. So that was something the Lord showed me that I would have to uh, serve her in helping her be delivered from. So small things, when we would walk down the street and we met in downtown Houston and we worked in downtown Houston together, I would intentionally put myself between her and the traffic on the sidewalk. Just as a small way of letting her know, listen, if something jump off and a car hits us, it's going to hit me first. Now, I'm using those as very small indications to show the type of willingness to demonstrate our willingness to die for our wives that we can employ. As husbands, we need to look for opportunities to do this. Look for opportunities to demonstrate, not just say, but to demonstrate, baby, I'll put my life down for you. Over time... And to be honest, I didn't really know all of this. I'm learning this through this because I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But my wife would tell me, man, that's amazing. Th thank you so much for doing that. And much to my surprise, because I'll just be honest with you, I, I didn't ever think she was ever going to get on time. <laughs> but now we're at the place where she's dressed before me now. She's ready before I am. And we've had conversations about it. And she said to me, you know, I just never been punctual my whole life. But I began to realize how important it was to you. But when I saw that you were willing to put yourself out for me, it gave me room. <laughs> it gave me room to want to respond to what you wanted to be in terms of punctuality. We never talked about it. I never said, babe, I wish you would start getting dressed earlier. We never had those conversations. 
I just express by demonstrations, no matter how many times you're going to be late, I'm going to make sure I take up for us. And she said, you know what that made me want to do? It made me want to be on time. The call to being a husband is to lay our lives down for our wives. Now, I'm going to ask this question rhetorically. What do you think is happening when you take the opportunity to submit your wife to pot shots? Man, I know we late, bro. You know women. You know how they are. You know, with the makeup. You know. And it seems innocent on the surface, but what would that be telling her? It would be unintentionally communicating to my wife that you know when the chips really get down, you're going to have to fend for yourself. So guess what that does to intimacy? <laughs> and by the way, I'm not talking about physical, in case you don't know. Intimacy is much, much broader than physical. I would submit physical is the lowest level of intimacy, but that's a whole other story. What it does is it impedes intimacy because at the core of the wife's heart is her belief that she has to live like this because she don't know when she's going to have to fight for herself. And we have cultivated that in our own marriages, our own lives, day after day. How many times have we, when the family get together, man, you know how Maria is, you know, she's always late, you know. <laughs> you know, don't get her going, she talks so much. You may not realize it, but you're cutting your own marriage with a thousand razor blade swipes. And when you want to get close, you wonder why she's not feeling it. Because you've been cutting her for seven years. You've been cutting her for ten years. So she's still recovering from those friendly blows. She's not even yet ready to have to deal with the outsiders because she has to protect herself from you. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. The model for submission... <laughs> Notice, it, just like the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The instructions concerning submission is to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. The model for this biblical submission is Jesus Christ. And I, I'll read this uh, from the King James. It says this, and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Oh, the ESV says, emptied himself, made himself of no reputation by taking upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The, the model for this submission within marriage is not another good woman <laughs> who you think has, does a good job of submitting. <laughs> it's not a couple that you look up to. The model is Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us empties himself. Oh, God. Now, all too often when we think about huh, the passion of Jesus Christ and the humiliation of the Christ. Most of our minds go to, you know, the Via Della Rosa. Or, or go to when Jesus was scourged and a crown of thorns was put on his head and he was punched in the face and says, if you're a prophet, tell us who smote you. But can I invite you to, a, to another consideration? That the true humiliation of Jesus Christ is when he condescended to put on human flesh to begin with. When the one who said, let there be and there was, said, now I will now subject myself to the very creation that I made. Will I submit my divine, omnipotent, ever-present, omniscient being 
to being concealed and condensed to a physical body, to where I have to reduce myself, you know, to excretory factions and using the restroom and sweating and body odor and having to say yes, ma'am, and having to say yes, sir, who the Lord tells us through his word that Jesus grew in the grace and, the, and, and, and stature with God and men. This submission of Jesus Christ began when he allowed himself to enter a mother's womb. The model for submission is Jesus. That's the model. Now, if you notice in both of these scenarios, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It does not say if. <laughs> husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church if she speaks to you in a proper manner. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church if she cooks your favorite meals. No, brothers and sisters, the model for this love is Christ. How did Jesus love us? While we were yet sinners, he didn't just love us, he died. The type of love that is required, Christ is the example of. Similarly, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. It's not unto men, it's as unto the Lord. It doesn't say submit to him if he does this and that right. There are no preconditions or qualifiers for this duty of this reciprocal love and submission. It's as unto the Lord. So if we, we truly want to engage, and I refer to marriage as ministry. And I'm going to say this, because I know this may seem foreign to some who are here. I don't care how far gone you are. <laughs> how far gone the scenario is. The Lord is in the business of restoration. The Lord is in the business of restoration. So these are things we can begin to implement immediately. If you're on the outs, the first question is, do you really want to be in? Because in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. <laughs> do you want to be in? Humble yourself. And the only time humility before man is difficult is when humility between you and God is already off. It's not difficult to humble yourself before another human being when you have a practice and a habit and a discipline of humbling yourself before God. If it is far gone, if it is far gone, the Lord's word is faithful and true. It's just as Dr. Shuler said yesterday, you have a hard time finding a woman who won't submit to you if she knows you'll die for her every day. That's not a difficult task when we're able to demonstrate the Christ-like love that evokes a response. Similarly, it's not a difficult task to submit ourselves to a vision from God. And so now here's a question that many of us have. Okay, let's say I started this, I didn't understand all of this. You know, and I didn't necessarily get married with a vision. The first thing that I would suggest is that you develop a prayer lifestyle. Notice I didn't say pray but develop a lifestyle of prayer because the Lord hears the prayer of his children and he yearns to answer. It's almost as if God was, would, would stand and say, I was just waiting for you to say, <laughs> to let me in the scenario. Say, Lord, would you please give me a vision for family? Lord, Lord would you give me a vision for my marriage? 
that I can present and be honest with yourself with whether or not it's just your idea or whether or not God is speaking to you. And if God is not speaking to you, be honest about that. And if he is, be willing to convey that. I had lots of stuff to say about family and everything else, but I'll, I'll just stop right here. With a re-emphasis on the fact that I don't care how far gone it may be, it's not too far gone. And also emphasis on the fact no matter how good it is, you can mess it up. So the encouragement is this. If, if you are in a good place, lean in even more. Lean in even more. Not take anything for granted. Not uh, assume things will continue as they are. But invest yourself in the ministry of marriage. And understand that the first ministry that God has called us to is to the ministry of our homes. The first ministry. The Great Commission, Jesus announced it and declared it that it was to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The Lord didn't want us sacrificing Jerusalem to win the world. Too often we have too many of us that we're trying to perform and do our best everywhere else except in our home. And the home gets our, our sloppy leftovers. We have to transform that. We have to transform that while we understand the call to being a husband, the call to being a wife is a call to ministry. It's an invitation to be a living and breathing illustration between Christ's relationship with his bride. And the very simple task, if it's gone the wrong way for a, a significant amount of time, the formula is still the same. Just repent. Repent. First before God and secondarily before your spouse. Repentance literally means the Greek word there is metanoia. Meta with, noia, mind. With the mind to turn, to as a result of having a renewed mind to think newly concerning your marriage, that new thought will produce new action, new fruit, and to make sure that your speech and your feet match up. So as you convey your contrition and your repentance to make sure that your actions match what you're saying. Because to live as Christ in the role of a husband or in the role of a wife requires there to be consistency in display to where we're not, you know, offering IOUs, take my word for it, but that our actions support what we say. You've been listening to a message by Abraham Hamilton III titled Marriage is Ministry on American Family Radio. You can hear more of Abe on The Hamilton Corner weekday afternoons at 5 Central on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We hope you've enjoyed this special broadcast on American Family Radio.